the Israelite camp is finally on the move. But the nation of Israel has no plans to travel blindly into the unknown. Spies are to be dispatched behind enemy lines to ascertain the potential resistance from the Canaanite tribes who already inhabit the land now promised to Israel. What happens as a result of the mission has enormous consequences for Moses' mass of desert nomads. If the spies return with a positive mental attitude and confidence that Canaan can be beaten, the invasion and subsequent land grab is a shoe-in. If they waver and doubt, however, the conquest will be a laboured and possibly failed one, a disaster for Israel. A huge amount of responsibility rests on the shoulders of the 12 men sent on the reconnaissance mission, and hopes are high. The advance on Canaan has begun. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 36, The Shame. Welcome back, or if you're new to this podcast, welcome aboard. We're on a very slow journey through the world's best-selling book. Nine months in, and we're still only on the fourth of the Bible's 66 books. None of this ultra-macho Bible in a year for us. Not that I'm mocking those who do read the Bible in a year, I'm just a bit jealous. I tend to glaze over and end up needing to reread things a number of times. Plus, I'm such a slow reader, I'd spend half the day with my nose in a Bible. A luxury of time I just don't have. So, here we are, midway through the Old Testament Book of Numbers. All quotes taken from Zondervan's new international UK edition of the Bible. Let's pick up the action somewhere in a desert in Sinai. The mass movement of people from the base of Mount Sinai has begun. The Book of Numbers has already spelled out the order in which the tribal groups are to set out, with the Levites in charge of carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the holy box believed to contain God, safely in the middle of the pack. Yet there is a suggestion that the Ark travels out in front of the group, which appears to be at odds with the hyper-organised rules laid down earlier in the book, which have it bang in the middle of the cavalcade. Why make these rules if they're going to be broken at the very first move? One suggestion is that the Ark is only metaphorically in pole position. The fact that God is seen to be inextricably linked to the golden box suggests that it is at their head, even though it has been carried by Kohathites in the middle of the convoy. Three days after they leave Mount Sinai, the Israelites arrive in the desert of Paran. The journey would have been broken by night camps at the end of each day. Whenever the camp sets out, Moses is recorded as asking God to rise up and scatter his enemies. Whenever the ark is set down at the end of the day, Moses begs God to return to the countless thousands of Israel. Not ones to hold back their gripes, some of the Israelites air their grievances about camping, and God's response is punitive and sudden. The outskirts of the camp are attacked by fire, resulting in fatalities and panic. As flames rage, the people instantly backtrack and beg Moses to intervene. After their leader prays to God, the fire abates and the place is given the name Tabera, which means burning. It seems that there is a group of troublemakers in the camp, consisting largely of non-Jews who have made the journey with them from Egypt. The Bible describes these people as a rabble. They begin moaning that their diet of manna is too monotonous, and soon the Israelites join in with their complaints, suggesting that life would be more bearable if they had meat to eat. 
They begin to pine for the free fish which they pulled out of the Nile, as well as the cucumbers, melons and other delicacies which they enjoyed in the old country. They claim to have lost their appetite thanks to eating manna for so long, and Moses finds their ingratitude galling. Those who have travelled with us through the book of Exodus will know that manna is the heavenly superfood that appears on the ground at dawn every Sunday to Thursday, with a double portion arriving on Fridays to see the Israelites through their Sabbath. The book of Numbers now goes into a little more detail about the nature and consistency of manna. It's like coriander seed, but resinous. It can be ground or crushed and baked into loaves, and it tastes as if it has olive oil added to it. Manna arrives with a dew every night and is free. All the Israelites have to do is collect enough to eat for the day. The objection to manna doesn't come from one or two voices of dissent. Moses hears the entire Israelite population wailing about how much they'd like to eat meat, and he is concerned. He asks God why he has to deal with people like this, especially as he isn't even their father. He wants to know why he must baby them all the way to Canaan and asks what he has done to upset God so much that leading the people has become such an ordeal. Besides, where can he possibly find meat to eat in the desert? The obvious answer is that the Israelites should eat some of their own livestock, but this doesn't appear to be an option. The burden of leadership is too heavy, Moses tells God. If this is how it is going to be for the whole journey, God should kill him now, he says. That way, he shouldn't have to experience his own complete failure. God appears to have a plan that meets Moses halfway. He asks him to bring 70 trusted leaders from among the people to the tabernacle and tells him that he will take a little of the spirit which he has given to him and spread it amongst these men so that they can help shoulder the responsibility of leadership. This is the good news. The bad news initially sounds like good news too. The people are to prepare for a veritable meat feast by purifying themselves. God has heard their wailing, Moses is to tell them, and he has also heard how they feel they would be better off in the meat-filled paradise that was Egypt. However, the Israelites will not just enjoy meat for one day or even a week. They will be given nothing but meat for a whole month, by which time they will be so sick of it that they will never want to taste the stuff again. It will come out of their nostrils, God tells them, and they will loathe it. This will be their punishment for failing to trust in him and for moaning that they were better off in Egypt without him, an attitude which God appears to find appallingly ungracious. Moses wants to know where this meat will come from. If just the men were counted, there will be 600,000 mouths to feed, and the Sinai wilderness is hardly awash with roaming cattle and flocks of sheep. And even if he slaughtered all available livestock and caught all the fish in the sea, the Israelites would still demand more. God is surprised at this lack of faith. Is the Lord's arm too short, he asks, at which point Moses arranges the 70 elders to gather at the tabernacle. The book describes how God comes down from the cloud and his spirit rests on the 70 men for a moment, during which they find that they are able to reveal divine truths that they weren't able to before, a superpower known to the Bible as prophecy. The sense is that this is a temporary fix to help Moses, rather than a long-term commissioning of holy men who would continue to channel God's spirit on an ongoing basis. However, two of the elders, Eldad and Medad, remain in the camp and prophesy there. A keen young scout rats them out, and Moses' assistant Joshua wants the men to be stopped. 
Moses appears to be just grateful that someone else is helping with the heavy lifting and says he wishes God's spirit would land on everyone, a rare humorous exclamation mark in these, the first five books of the Bible. After Moses and the elders return to the camp, a wind blows up and drives quail in from the sea. The wind deposits the birds three feet deep all over the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. Greedily, the people spend the whole day, night and following day gathering as many of the tiny birds as they can, and the book records that no one brings home less than one and three quarter tons of birds, an astonishing haul. The quail are arranged on the ground around the camp, perhaps to dry, salt and preserve for later. No sooner have the Israelites bitten into the meat than God sends a plague to punish them for their cravings. Before the survivors move on to yet another unidentifiable station stop, the place where they were inundated with meat is named Kibroth Hatava, which means Graves of Craving. Later, in the book of Job, the book's hero declares that God gives and he takes away, and never is this truer than in the story of the Israelites and the quail. Moaning Israelites aren't the only problem that Moses has to deal with. Now his own family is making life hard for him. Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, appear to have a problem with Moses' wife, who is described as a Cushite. Cush is a kingdom to the south of Egypt in the region of modern-day Ethiopia and Sudan. It's uncertain whether the woman they are referring to is Zipporah or another wife who Moses marries because Zipporah has died, or if he simply adds another wife to his marriage. Miriam and Aaron's attitude appears to be an early form of racism, where native-born Israelites look down on foreign converts. The siblings also believe that they have independently received messages from God, suggesting that they feel as qualified to lead the Israelites as their brother. After hearing them grumbling off camera, God summons all three to the tabernacle and appears to them in a pillar of cloud. The book of Numbers describes Moses as being more humble than anyone else on earth, and the sense is that God is outraged that his brother and sister should dare to speak ill of such a saint. According to the book, he summons Aaron and Miriam for a dressing down. God is clearly very fond of Moses and seems genuinely upset at this attempt to push him aside. He explains that with regular prophets, he speaks in visions and dreams, something borne out by the 16 holy men whose revelations and prophecies appear later on in the Old Testament. However, God appears to see Moses as on a higher level than these, which is why he speaks to him plainly, face to face, and even allows him to glimpse some kind of physical manifestation. If Moses is cherished so highly by God, how dare anyone say anything against him? Furious, God leaves them, and when the pillar of cloud disappears, the scale of God's anger is apparent. One of Miriam's hands has turned leprous. Aaron immediately acknowledges their foolishness and begs Moses not to hold their moment of madness against them. He asks him not to leave their sister like a stillborn child that comes out of the womb with its flesh half eaten away. Clearly a forgiving brother, Moses prays to God, asking him to reverse the damage to his sister's arm. God obliges, ordering Miriam to be kept outside the camp for seven days until she is ritually clean again. It's clear that he isn't pleased with Moses' sister and wastes no words in letting her know this, telling her that this quarantine is exactly what would have happened to her if her father had spat in her face. 
The suggestion is that this might be the kind of response her actions deserved, and even more mortifying, the whole of Israel has to wait while Miriam spends her seven days outside the camp. Once she's back in one piece, the camp moves on to a different spot of nondescript desert north of Sinai. Information is power, and God appears to want Moses to know the lie of the land, so that he is better prepared as the Israelites press on towards Canaan. Leaders from each of the twelve tribes are sent on a mission through the Negev and on into the distant hill country to see what kind of land it is, whether the people are strong or weak, and if there are many defenders or just a handful. They need to know if the towns are fortified or undefended, if the soil is fertile and if there is woodland. The men are to bring back soil samples and grapes if they can find any, so that Israel has a clear idea of where they are going and how best to get there. Among the leaders sent on the journey is Joshua, who has already been earmarked by Moses as a man he can trust. No Levite leader is included in the team, as the Levites have their work cut out back at camp and are exempt from spying duties. The men make good progress and arrive at Hebron, an ancient town that exists in Abraham's time and which the Book of Numbers declares is seven years older than the Egyptian city of Zoan, possibly Pharaoh's royal court at the time Moses is alive. When they reach one particularly fertile valley, they cut off a branch from a vine that is laden with grapes and drape it over a pole with some pomegranates and figs to bring home to Moses. In honour of their luscious hall, they name the valley Eshkol, which means cluster. On their return 40 days after they set out, the men report reasonably positively. The land is flowing with milk and honey and there is plenty of fruit. However, the people are strong and their cities are large and heavily fortified. They list the tribes they encountered, descendants of Anak, Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites and Canaanites, all of whose names pepper the next few books of the Bible. The Canaanites mentioned here come across as the original owners of the land who by now have been marginalised to the western coast and to the east along the Jordan, the first time this famous river gets a mention in the Bible. Of the twelve spies to go on a recce into Canaan, only two return with a wholly positive slant. All this negativity is too much for one of them, a man named Caleb, who tells Moses that the Israelites are perfectly able to seize all the territory which they have just scouted out. Joshua appears to have Caleb's back, but the other ten leaders are having none of this and spread a rumour among the camp that the land which they saw consumes people and that the legendary antediluvian giants known as the Nephilim roam here. These are actually Anakites who bear no relation to the Nephilim, but their size makes the spies assume that they are the sons of this ancient and tyrannical race. Compared to these gigantic foes, the spies claim they felt like grasshoppers terror among the rest of the elders, an outrage and protest to Moses, who yet again has to bring the mob to order before any progress towards their new home can be made. The result of the spies' fear is a full-scale revolt against Israel's leadership. The night of the spies' return sees a gathering of elders petitioning Moses and Aaron not to proceed any further towards Canaan. Convinced by the majority verdict among the scouts who have just been to Canaan, the men weep aloud and confess that they would be better off remaining in Egypt or even here in the desert. 
genuinely believing that they will be cut to pieces by enemy swords and their families captured, they urge one another to pick a new leader to take them back to Egypt. Sensing the danger that this is putting them in with God, Moses and Aaron fall face down to the ground. Exasperated at how easily intimidated their cohorts have proved to be, Caleb and Joshua tear their clothes, pleading with the tribes to trust God and continue with plan A. They have seen a land flowing with milk and honey, they tell them. As long as God remains pleased with Israel, it is theirs for the taking. All they ask is that the people trust in God and stop fearing what lies ahead. We will devour them, they tell their fellow Israelites. Canaan has no protection and God is on their side. It's a powerful speech, but has no effect on placating the mob. There is even talk about stoning Moses, Caleb and Joshua. Fake news and misinformation have trumped fact, and the bias spun by ten of the spies has overruled the eyewitness statements of the other two. At this point, the book of Numbers describes how God decides to intervene. He manifests himself in what the book refers to as his glory at the tabernacle, possibly in the pillar of cloud or fire. Furious at his people's lack of faith in him despite demonstrable miracles that have rescued them from appalling oppression in Egypt, God vows to ruin the entire nation of Israel with a plague. Only Moses and his family will be spared, he says, and promises to use them to build a new nation which will be greater and stronger than the one he is about to destroy. Ever mindful of PR and how this will look to the Egyptians, Moses pushes back on the plan. If God can't bring his people into the land which he has promised them, he looks weak. The Egyptians will all have heard about Israel's escapades, he tells him. News will spread that he is with Israel and that he has been seen face to face and that his cloud and fire are guiding and guarding this nation. If he carries out his plan to kill them, the Egyptians will assume that God simply wasn't up to the task of moving that many people from one country to another, which is why he killed them in the desert. Moses reminds God that he is slow to anger, yet full of love and forgiveness, and suggests an alternative way forwards. He should remind the Israelites who is boss by punishing his people for the next three or four generations. Yet he should still find it in his heart to forgive them, just like he has continually forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. God accepts Moses' argument, but he is still incensed, and the sentence he passes on Israel is a stiff one. Not one person who left Egypt will arrive in Canaan. Only their children and grandchildren will reach the promised land. This is the price his people must pay for disobeying him, testing him and treating him with contempt, he tells them. God ultimately delays the Israelites' arrival date in Canaan for an astonishing 38 years, a life sentence for almost all adults in an age where life expectancy is already drastically lower than it is for many people today. Out of all Israel, only Caleb and Joshua are commended by God for having the right spirit, and Caleb is personally promised land for himself and his descendants. In the meantime, the mass of refugees is ordered to turn away from potential confrontation with Canaanite and Amalekite tribes in a nearby valley and head in the opposite direction towards the Red Sea, back into the wilderness. It's hard to imagine the effect that a blow like this must have had on the collective psyche of Israel. 
It's nothing short of a miracle that Moses doesn't throw down his staff and give up, leaving the rest of the rabble to make their own luck. After all, he played no part in this and is being made to suffer for everyone else's shortfalls. For tens of thousands of people, the entire adult population of Israel, it's a life sentence. The only glimmer of hope is that the land that they have been heading towards during the past year and a half will eventually be inhabited by their children. Stuck in their desert wilderness, sick of quail and with only manna to eat, this must come as cold comfort. The wandering in the wilderness that defines the next 38 years of Jewish history has begun. by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. Oh, and if you have a spare minute, please give us a review on whatever channel you use to listen to this podcast. Your reviews really do help spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.